0: Well, please do have your Bible open in Matthew in chapter 11 as we consider those first six verses which Cliff read for us before. Matthew, in many ways, has quite masterfully brought us to this point in his Gospel record of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Beginning with the family tree, which demonstrates the Jewish heritage into which Jesus was born as a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and of King David. Uh, Rightly, could Jesus be addressed as the son of David, the son of David, the promised seed, the eternal king? Uh, And for those who might be worried by the fact that Matthew is recording Joseph's family tree, but Joseph wasn't actually the biological father of Jesus, Luke records Mary's family tree, which likewise goes back through King David to Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. Matthew records Christ's conception in Mary and his birth, the escape into Egypt, his appearing to John the Baptist to be baptised, his temptation in the wilderness, the start of his ministry, and Matthew records the very first word that Jesus preached? Repent. He gives us the wonderful transcript of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and then through chapters 8 and 9 presents these different scenes which all act as building blocks, one on top of the other, to establish beyond all doubt the true identity of Jesus and to display so fully, his heart of compassion for all of the people. And then we saw in chapter 10 the preparation of the 12 disciples, his apostles, for them to go out in gospel ministry. So there would be, there'd be six pairs of men who would take this message of the kingdom of God out into the region of Galilee to begin with in northern Israel. And we noted in verse 7 of chapter 10, that the primary task of these men was to preach. They were to teach and they were to inform and they were to instruct, but they were to do so in in a way which demanded from people a response to the message. And that's the, the added edge that preaching has, which teaching doesn't necessarily have. Preaching seeks to persuade people Preaching encourages people, you need to come to a decision about this based upon what you've just heard. Uh, Preaching doesn't merely educate or inform. It does that, but it has to go further than that. You now need to do something with what you've just heard. Needs to make a difference. And so the primary activity of the apostles is preaching And the miraculous gifts that they were given, which they were enabled and authorised to use in verse 8 of chapter 10, they were to be attesting and authenticating signs. Now, earlier when we read in the Acts of the Apostles, we heard Peter say the very same thing about the life of Jesus. All of the miracles that he did were confirming signs to demonstrate to people this is God, as man, doing these things. You need to listen to him. And the same gifts were given to the apostles for exactly the same reason and purpose. These authenticating signs, the miracles they were able to perform, made it abundantly clear that these were God's spokesmen. They were empowered by God himself And they are declaring God's truth and God's word. So listen up, people. You need to take notice of what they're saying. And with those six pairs of men now instructed and equipped through chapter 10, they can go, they can be sent out. And what does that leave? Well, that leaves Jesus to take a breather and plan their next evangelistic campaign, doesn't it? No, not at all. What does he do but go after them? Presumably, Jesus goes to other places which they would not get to, although their individual routes and the villages and towns they visited are not made clear to us. But Jesus goes on after them. And what does he do? He goes out preaching. Well, here's point number one this morning. You can never have too much preaching. Preaching. And this is just verse one of chapter 11. Now, it says cities, they go out around cities. Now, this actually can refer to any town or village of any size. They didn't have lots of different types of names like we do for hamlet, village, town, and so on. So when it says a city, it can actually mean a dwelling place of any size. Uh, but regardless of the size, they all need the gospel. And so out they go to take the message of Christ. And some might, be, might suppose, because you often hear this kind of thing said today, some might suppose that having sent his apostles out to preach, Jesus might sit down and try to see if he could come up with some other approach that they can try next time round. Maybe there's some other activity that he can prepare them to do. Maybe there's some other kind of event that they can stage together. Maybe preaching's not, not for everyone. So why don't I see if I can sit down and think of a different method of doing all of this? Because surely, as long as you're sincere, as long as your motive is pure, what does it matter what means you employ in doing God's work? Well, as you read through the Bible, you'll discover that God frequently and nearly always introduces means for how he requires things to be done. In the Old Testament, of course, those requirements could often be quite lengthy, quite detailed, quite long-winded as you read them through. For example, like the instructions that God gives for the building and the, uh, the functioning of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Chapters and chapters, as God lays down all of the very specific details which he expects to be followed to the letter. But as Uzzah discovered in 2 Samuel chapter 6, when he simply tried to make sure that the Ark of the Covenant didn't fall off the back of a cart, good intentions on their own are never enough with God. And to disobey the means which God has clearly laid down is a very serious thing as those who buried Uzzah discovered. Sometimes God gave instructions which were one-offs for a specific occasion or circumstance. So, for example, you have Naaman, the Syrian army commander in 2 Kings chapter 5, a man suffering with leprosy. And he would not be cured of his leprosy unless and until he did exactly what God had prescribed through his prophet Elisha. And it was only as he came up out of the Jordan River, and no other river would have done it, and as he came up the seventh time, that his skin was like new. Only then was he healed. When God shows you not only what must be done, but how it must be done. It is a most foolish thing to suppose that he's not serious about it. Or that you can improve it. Or that you are at liberty to change it. And it's the same with making known the gospel. The saving good news of the Lord Jesus Christ in his redeeming work of grace through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection. It's through the word preached. There are truths that people need to know. There are specific truths that people need to be confronted with about themselves in their sin and about God in his righteousness and about how the Lord Jesus Christ alone is the means of salvation. And it's through the word preached, it's as the word is preached that the Spirit of God moves in the heart of the sinner. Now there are different ways and circumstances by which the word can be preached. But it must be preached. Well, it can be preached in church pulpits. But that's not the only place for preaching, is it? It can be preached in your own home as parents instruct children. It can be preached on beaches in the summer. It can be preached in Sunday school classes all year round. It can be preached in the open air in city centres. It can be preached over a cup of coffee with a friend, in a cafe or in your own home. It can be preached over the garden fence. It can be preached at the front gate with your neighbour. It can be printed in gospel tracts. It can be handed out in John's Gospels for people to read. But it's the communicating, the declaring, the heralding of this truth and the persuading that a response is required. This is what God shows us to be... His means by which people are brought to saving faith in Christ. Go and tell them, go and persuade them, go and urge them, go and exhort them. We heard Peter earlier on. There is no other name given among men under heaven by which you must be saved. Not when you can be if you feel like it. You can be if you think this is the kind of thing that's for you. No, you must be saved. You must respond. That's preaching, you see. Above everything else, the apostles would be preachers just as Jesus is. He goes off to preach. Even for Jesus, there is no substitute for slogging out the miles, village to village, and town to town, in order to preach. No greater desire, no greater urgency, no greater thrill than to go from village to village and town to town in order to preach. What gospel preaching would you engage in this week, this year? What gospel preaching will we engage in as a local church this year? Who will we reach? Who will we tell? And here's the most wonderful thing. As the apostles go out, Jesus is right alongside them in the work. He's right alongside them. He's actually tasking them with following in his footsteps. He's already been doing this and now he continues and he walks beside them as they do it. Now he might not have been actually physically with them in that particular village but he's he's with them in spirit and the work that he's sent them out to do, he's out there somewhere doing it likewise. He's with us in this. They know that he is giving of himself just as he's asked of them. And he will know and experience all of the same joys and frustrations and disappointments that they will experience as they preach the gospel. Those who gladly and readily accept it and embrace him. Those who are just apathetic and uh, if you like. And those who are violently opposed to him and everything in between. All those kinds of responses that the apostles will receive. The kinds of responses that you will get. Jesus Jesus knows he's been there. He's heard those voices. And an even more wonderful thing is to know that as you and I go out with the gospel, Christ is with you and Christ is with me. When we get to the close of Matthew's Gospel, we will be left with these words ringing in our ears. Go, make disciples of all nations. I am with you, always. And later on, the Apostle Paul would explain that When we speak to others about Christ, when you speak to others about Christ, it's like he is with you, doing the preaching through you. Well, he is with you, isn't he? If you're a Christian, he indwells you by his Spirit. If he doesn't do that, you're not a Christian. He's in you, he's with you. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 18. Now all things are of God, who's reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world, the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of of reconciliation, the word of reconciliation, the truth and message of the gospel. Now then, says Paul, we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is one who speaks on behalf of the government or the king. We're ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You see, there's a response required. It's not just laying down a certain load of facts and walking away. No, you need to respond to this. Be reconciled. For he who made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God is pleading through us as we preach. He'll be doing that through you. Whenever you you speak to someone about Christ, God is speaking through you to them. The great commission which Christ has placed upon his church is to preach him, to make him known. There can never be too much preaching of this sort, can there? How can we speak of Christ too much? Although with one little caveat, of course, that doesn't mean being like a message stuck on repeat incessantly with the same people never knowing when to stop. You remember the the instruction that Peter gave uh, to wives who had unbelieving husbands. Don't try and nag them into the kingdom. They need to know the truth, but also you can live such a gracious life that by your life you commend the gospel to them. But you get the point here. We're to go on preaching. We're to, we're to be preachers and heralders of the good news of Christ. For all of us, our life's work is to make Christ known. There's that great children's hymn that you used to sing, sing years ago, you in your small corner and I in mine. Wherever God has placed you, you are to make him known. And then we find our train of thought interrupted a little in a way as The disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus there. And it seems a little bit out of place at first. John the Baptist's in prison. And he's hearing about all these things that are going on. Uh, And what we find uh, here uh, is the doubts of a true believer... The doubts of a true believer. Now, this second point this morning, this is a, a, a shorter point sandwiched between two longer ones. John the Baptist's in prison. Now, we've seen he came storming out of the desert, didn't he? Quite a sight and sound he was preaching, preaching this message of repentance. And uh, as part of his, uh, his ministry, he made a very bold statement about King Herod. Uh, who was in an adulterous and immoral relationship with his sister-in-law. And John the Baptist didn't hold back in condemning King Herod for this relationship that he was in. And unsurprisingly, Herod was not too chuffed to have that thrust in his face and would have killed him, except he was rather fearful uh, about the response that might produce amongst the people because actually most of the people really liked John the Baptist. He was a very popular figure And so rather than kill him, he just had him thrown into jail. While John's there, he's been hearing many reports. Presumably, his disciples are able to visit him and they're bringing to him the news of all that Jesus is doing. But we discover that John has niggling doubts and fears. There's some discussion as to what precisely John meant by his question in verse 3, what precisely was the nature of this lack of assurance that he had, but what is clear is that John's not totally certain if Jesus is actually going to do what many had imagined the Jewish Messiah would do, uh, which would be to reestablish the nation of Israel as it had once been, but even better. The way we read of Israel under the kingships of David and Solomon in the Old Testament, surely the Messiah's job was to re-establish that kind of kingdom in the world once more. Many thought of the the work of the Messiah in that sense. But here's the, the real thing, how remarkable it is that this man who even before he was born who was chosen by God to be the forerunner of Christ, that even he can still struggle with such doubts and be in need of such assurance. This is the man who, when still unborn in his mother's womb, leaped inside the womb of Elizabeth as Mary, carrying Jesus in her own body, came to visit Elizabeth, John's mother. And John leaped in the womb, we're told. This is the man who recognised Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and declared him as such. This is the Baptist who saw the Spirit descend as a dove, who heard the voice of God the Father confirm his pleasure over his Son. And still, even John the Baptist needs words of comfort and assurance. So dear brother and sister in Christ, don't beat yourself up if you go through a similar season. And do note what the answer was for John. Tell him of me, says Jesus. Now you might think Jesus will go and visit him in prison, but he doesn't, not physically. Jesus knows this will suffice. Tell him of me. Let him see me. Let him hear me. Tell him of the things I'm doing. Tell him of the message I'm preaching. Tell him of me. That will do it for you too. In times, times of doubt, in times of worry, in times of anxiety, in times of fear. Open your Bible. Look again at Christ. He will be enough. Be convinced afresh about your Saviour, what He's done for you, who you now are in Him. Put yourself under the preaching of the Word to be brought again to Christ. See afresh His compassion, His mercy, His grace. Hear afresh His promises. Heed his exhortations. Listen to him. Respond to him as he speaks and calls. Look again. Seek him afresh. And you will find him. And he will come to you. Jesus knew this will be enough for John. Tell him of me. Christ is your all-sufficient one. And on those days when doubts or fears or niggles may come, turn again prayerfully to the Scriptures. Discover afresh Christ. Your fears will be dealt with, your anxieties will be dealt with, because He is sufficient. And then this little section that we're considering this morning concludes with the trusting faith of a true believer. The trusting faith of a true believer So Jesus speaks to John's disciples there, verses 4 and 5. And that's as much as he says. And Jesus is absolutely convinced that that's going to be enough for John. And then, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. The trusting faith of a true believer So we have the truths of Christ laid out, the truths of Christ summarised in verses 4 and 5. What what it is he's doing, the message that it is that he's preaching, and then that final little uh, exhortation in verse 6. Jesus actually begins to address John's disciples there in verses 4 and 5 by quoting from Isaiah And these words that he's talking about can be found in chapter 29 and in chapter 35 in Isaiah. And Jesus seems completely confident that John will immediately recognise that that's where these verses are drawn from. And Jesus is saying, here is what people are witnessing in my ministry and this is exactly what Isaiah prophesied concerning the coming Messiah there's a powerful unleashing of God's power by his Spirit in the physical realm with all of these miracles that Jesus is performing. And they are the signal for the arriving of the unleashing of God's power in the spiritual realm, to do that spiritual work that is required in sinners. And so you've got this unleashing of God's power by His Spirit in the physical realm, attesting to this unleashing of God's power by His Spirit and in His grace in the spiritual realm. And that's being, that's being accomplished through the preaching of the gospel that Jesus and His apostles are doing. And it's the preaching of the gospel that is accomplishing this purpose the announcing of salvation and forgiveness for sin and pardon for guilt, reconciliation for those who are at enmity with God and all of this freely offered as God's gift of grace through the merits of the Lord Jesus who very soon now would suffer and die for our sins and be buried and raised to life again and forever on the third day. Jesus is confident that this will be enough to convince John and to calm his fears. And then there's this final line, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. what, What does Jesus actually mean there? Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. If you've been with us on Sunday evenings in our series through Romans, do you recall something that we recently read there? The Apostle Paul is broken-hearted over the vast number of his fellow Jews who have rejected Christ and who are not saved. Uh, They don't see him as being the promised Messiah, and they haven't turned in repentance and faith to Christ. And at the end of chapter 9 of Romans, Paul says this, Uh, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Well, no one can keep the law and be righteous enough for God. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. It was just through their works they were trying to be saved. They stumbled at that stumbling stone. I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The Jews were convinced that by their works they could attain a sufficient degree of righteousness that they would merit the favor of God. Look at what I've done. Surely this is enough. Some people look at it the opposite way around. Whilst the Jew recognises their sinful state but believes that they can work their way up to God, others believe, well, everyone is basically born good. And as long as you don't do anything too bad, you'll still earn and merit God's favour. So everyone accepts some kind of cut-off point, a point where you pass or fail, if you like, for some, it's, um, it's a question of working your way up to and beyond that point, and if you've managed to do that, you're okay. For others, they see it as everyone starts above that point, and as long as you don't drop below it, you'll be okay. So as long as you don't do anything really bad, you'll still be fine. Now, of course, in, in most of the Western culture that we live in today, they take that second view everybody's basically born good. And as long as you don't do anything really bad, really wicked, why would would God reject me? And when it comes to what's really wicked, well, I'll actually be the one who decides that. In Jesus' day, it was the other way around. It was working upwards to achieve a certain amount, a sufficient accumulation of good works. And against that, you see, when the message of the gospel falls upon the ears of sinners, what an offence it is. You're saying I'm not good enough. How dare you? Whether they're the ones trying to work their way up from the bottom or whether they're the ones who think they haven't fallen down far enough from the top, how dare you say that my way of thinking is wrong? How dare you say that I'm not good enough for God or for heaven? How dare you use the word wicked of the likes of me? And it's a great offence and it's like throwing a stone in their path that trips them up, to simply receive by faith, (coughs) to not do any kind of work in order to merit God's favor, to be told that anything which I consider to be a spiritual feather in my cap before God gets me absolutely nowhere. To be told that I cannot possibly imagine myself good enough to merit God's heaven? What an offence this is to the proud human heart. Do you remember how Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount as he outlined what is the basic nature of a Christian believer? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who mourn over their sin. Those who are meek and who humble themselves before God. They are the ones who have a place in the kingdom of heaven. In the year 2000, a song was released by a group called M People, which became an anthem for many I look into the window of my mind, reflections of the fears I know I've left behind. I step out of the ordinary. I can feel my soul ascending. I'm on my way. Can't stop me now. And you can do the same. What have you done today to make you feel proud? Heather Small, you know the song, many of you? What have you done today to make you feel proud? That's the message people want to hear. Be proud of yourself. Love yourself. When Prince Harry launched his International Games for Wounded Service Personnel, he wanted a name for it which would encapsulate the spirit that he was wanting to encourage. And he found the name, or probably someone did for him, by borrowing the title of a poem by William Ernest Henley. The poem is entitled Invictus, hence the Invictus Games. And the poem concludes with these two lines, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Oh, you think so. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to encourage people to live an active, productive and purposeful life. There's nothing wrong with that at all. There's nothing wrong with encouraging people to have a positive attitude. But surely you can see the problem here. What have you done today to make you feel proud. That's the Pharisee who Jesus pictured on the street corner, congratulating himself in prayer before God and to whom God turned a deaf ear. It's against that kind of worldly backdrop that the gospel is so offensive because the Christian position, of course, is this. What have you done today to please God, to edify others, and in all things bring glory and honour to Christ? That's the way the Christian thinks. That's the question the Christian asks. It's not that Christians cannot be really productive And that Christians shouldn't achieve much. You should be productive. You should achieve much. But it's the motive and the attitude of heart which has to be so very different. Listen to Paul in Colossians 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above not on the things of the earth. You've died. Your life is hidden with Christ, in God. That's you now. It's those who are not offended by me, says Jesus. They're the ones in whom I'll make the difference. Those who are ready to humble themselves before me, those who are ready to confess and repent their sins before me, those who are ready to say that I am nothing and I must become less and Christ is all and he must become more, they're the ones who will receive me. There's no place before him for the proud and self-righteous heart which thinks it can determine and decide everything without any reference to, to Almighty God. You'll truly be blessed, truly be blessed when you don't take offence at Christ's call to come to him as the sinner you are, to confess your sins, to deny yourself, to humble yourself, and to give up all to follow him and to trust him. Trust him for your salvation. Trust him for eternity. And so even John the Baptist is exhorted to consider Jesus. Tell him of me. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And that's the message for us today. Look at the more, more than ample demonstration and confirmation of who Jesus is in the Bible. Listen to the message of grace and mercy which God extends to sinners that they might be saved and that they might be made whole again and you might be. This is the Jesus and this is the message that you must consider today, that you might know him, that you might be saved, that you might belong to him forever. May the Lord stir us up. Still early on in this current year, may the Lord stir us up to go and make him known.